You are listening to the Current Reality Podcast, where we talk about staying anchored in biblical reality within the current of modern culture. We are your hosts. I'm Michael Clary, and with me is Wade Thomas. We are both on staff at Christ the King Church in Cincinnati, Ohio, which makes this podcast possible. If you'd like to ask a question or give feedback, you can reach us at currentrealitypodcast at gmail.com. Again, currentrealitypodcast at gmail.com. And we answer listener questions at the end of every episode. Today, we're recording live at the King's Domain Conference, Clear Speech for a Confused Age. And we are talking with two speakers who are at the conference, Aaron Wren and Michael Foster. They will be able to introduce themselves in a moment as we move forward. Uh, But... Wade, let me kick it over to you to get us going. What do you got for us today? All right. Well, as Michael said, we are here live at the conference that our ministry is putting on. Uh, Just a a refresher on who we are. Uh, This podcast was born out of both Michael and I were uh, church planters in the 2010 to 2012 sort of era. Uh, We were both reformed, gospel coalition type guys, um, and over time realized that that uh, model of ministry and engaging the world had some serious deficiencies that we didn't account for as young men. Michael is slightly older than me. I won't say how much older, but we were slightly. We were young enough for it to be somewhat excusable, but not totally excusable. And so we have come to repent of a lot of our uh, former beliefs and assumptions about how the world operated and Kind of we're running on separate tracks here in Cincinnati, and the last couple of years, I've joined Michael's church, and now I'm on staff here. And so the podcast is a way for us to help other young men and women see that you're not crazy. If you're reading the Bible and wanting to follow it faithfully, uh, and you feel like you're the only one in the room, you're not the only one in the room. We're, right. we're seeing the world the way you are, too, and, and encourage each other. So with, uh, with that said, today's podcast, since we've got Michael and Aaron here, thank you guys for being here. We wanted to take advantage of your talks and then also your, um, some of your expertise uh, in engaging the culture with plain spoken truth, biblical truth, distinctly Protestant truth. Michael just gave a talk on uh, flattery and uh, having a full breadth of biblical speech as we talk to each other and even talk to the world. I want to ask both of you, uh, our speech, Michael, you said is not to be monotone. So what notes or cadences have you noticed are most missing from our speech right now? Yeah, uh, so uh, I see either people, so a good example of this is the news. So back, go back to the early 90s, the first time you really get a ticker at the bottom of the news is with something like O.J. Simpson. So O.J. Simpson's in his Bronco, he's driving, all the cops are following him. A ton of people watched that. I, I watched it, you know, a huge portion of America did. And then they realized that people would tune in for any sort of emergency. Um, so if you l- watch or listen to the news or read the websites, uh, at least the mainstream outlets have a tendency to have everything's an alert, everything's falling apart, uh, or something's bad is happening all the time. And so they have people at, um, they really get people really riled up it's because uh, it, that's what, it's kind of like if it bleeds, it leads. They're trying to get clicks and keep people. So sometimes that's an example of where everything feels much worse than it is. Yeah. And I remember I, I stopped watching the news many years ago, but I was at a trade show during um, the Delta variant down in Florida. And the Delta variant, you know, it was like right, almost everyone had given up, but there was like a little bit of scare at that moment. <laughs> and I turned on uh, the television and was set to MSNBC. 
And watching the people talk about the Delta variant after just flying and going through Miami and everywhere, it was like out of a movie. It was, seemed so fake and corny and all over the top. And, um, and that's not anything that I saw out there. Everyone was like really chill, actually. And that's just an example of how that stuff can get you really riled up all the time. And so that, that's that kind of tonally, uh, everything falling apart, can, you can see that in different groups. News, you can see it in the right right now. Everyone, a lot of people bought property and chickens and went out and <laughs> were expecting the apocalypse to, to happen. Um, but it, it looks more like maybe a slow strangulation by bureaucracy over many decades. <laughs> it's probably a little more um, uh, likely than Mad Max. And so these folks are, they they had this sort of rhetoric of everything, like East Palestine, it's all over, this is part of it, it's the plan, we're all gonna die, right? And here we are now, and I, I used to get in trouble for pointing out to people like, you know, hey, th there are still eggs, it was just bad feed, and, and look, the Christmas happened, there was toys. It's like everyone forgets. I mean, we've been out of diesel fuel now for like two years. I mean, I don't know if anyone sees those articles, but after a while, did you start qu questioning it? So why do those articles go out? Well, people um, like to be riled up. They like to keep their emotions at a certain place. And so I see it on the right and on the left or whatever, that'd be an example. Um, or folks that treat enemies and friends um, identically. That's, you see that in sort of the winsome crowd that we, we've been talking about yeah. over the last few sessions. Um, there's no... Uh, diversity in response. So there's a couple examples off the top of my head. Yeah, I, I remember reading uh, like a year or so ago, I saw that apparently once in the 1920s, I think it was, the BBC actually said at the beginning of the day over the radio, there is no news today, and they just played classical music for the rest of the day. And I was like, I wish we could go back to Amen. that. Amen. <laughs> That'd be so good. Uh, Michael, so I've, I've heard you talk about like having a theology or, of enemies or being prepared to have enemies, and that's one thing Michael mentioned both in his talk and now. So if you're going to be plain spoken, you're going to produce enemies. You're going to have people who hate you. There's Psalm 37. There's a category of wicked man who hates the righteous because he's righteous. Yeah. Uh, how do you deal with that? How do you how do you speak plainly despite the fact that you are now you have a target on your back? Um, I mean, you do, and not just because you're six. Are you talking to me? Yeah. Not I, I personally. You have a target on your back. I didn't want to say anything to you, but. <laughs> Well, I mean, Jesus said, love your enemies, but that presupposes that we have them and we know them. Um, so when it, love your enemy is not an abstraction of, you know, just out in the world generally, there are enemies. So radical Islamic terrorists, I love them. That's an abstraction. That doesn't mean anything or require anything of me at all. But when I'm like, okay, there's Frank. He gets on my last nerve. He criticizes me all the time. His breath stinks. He's annoying. That's an enemy. That's a real person that I have to think about and have to Who love. is Frank for you? Go ahead. Just, just tell us. Well, I, I don't. Dude, you looked at me when you said that. <laughs> Am I Frank? I'm not going to name names. Right. But there have been times when I've had to, to think about, okay, who, who is an enemy? And it's, it's not just the the hardened, hardcore atheist, you know, that's, that's a Christian basher, a lot of times it's going to be someone in our church or someone in our Christian circles that we have some relationship with. And I think over the last couple of years, especially, the, a lot of the heat is coming from within. So I've noticed that 
the, the winsome crowd seems to get decidedly not winsome whenever they're correcting other people for not being winsome. Mm. So they're gonna, they're, I'd say there's, there's gonna be rebukes for things that you say that, that doesn't toe the party line in, in a nice guy sort of way. That's, that's when, I, when I have to remember, love my enemy, <laughs> uh, pray for those who persecute. Because a lot of times it's, it's coming from within the Christian world. Can you make it less abstract? How do you love that guy? That guy who's super winsome, he's mad at you because you tweeted or wrote some blog mm-hmm. that wasn't winsome enough, and now he's coming to you with his concerns. Yeah. I have concerns about your ministry, Michael. How do you love that guy? Well, Jesus, there's two that come right to mind. Pray for those who persecute you. Do good to them. So pray for them, and your heart changes toward a person when you pray for them. And do good to them that they're concrete action. Um, what can I do to demonstrate, if it's a person like, let's say, in my own church, what can I do practically to demonstrate some goodwill to that person, an olive branch, um, take them out to coffee for lunch. I'm like, hey, brother, let's, let's, let's talk it out. Some, some, kind of, some kind of kind gesture can be a way. And I think a lot of times actions lead our affections. So we, we do good things for people, we pray for people, and then the lagging indicator is the way we feel about them and that it can change our heart toward a person. Should I be worried if I don't have any enemies? Absolutely. Okay. Scripture says it. Okay. Um, both of you two, uh, Michael and Michael, you guys brought up the tone police. Can you, can you give us, you don't have to name names, but can you give us an example of when the tone police came for you? Yesterday? Or name names. Okay, <laughs> um, okay so I, here's an example from literally yesterday. Um, there was the guy from Dude Perfect. Not Dude Perfect, I'm sorry, from uh, Mr. Beast, Mr. Beast guy. Uh, is one of the co-hosts who came out as trans. Um, and he has a wife and a child, and he's basically breaking his marriage vow uh, to say he's a woman now, destroying his family, people that are depending on him, and that's an act of cruelty, that's an act of uh, spousal abuse, that's an act of child abuse, to do that to your wife and to your child. Um, In my view, one of the ways, one of the powerful tools that we have to deal with that, especially for our children. My 12-year-old son loves Mr. Beast. He watches the videos, he knows the people, he's always telling me about, hey, he gave money to this guy, they gave that thing away, and it's always these big, outlandish things that they do. I still literally don't know what this is, by the way. This is a show on YouTube. Have you heard of YouTube? Yes. Have you heard of the internet? We don't have it, but yes, I've okay. heard of it. It's a YouTube channel. Uh, is it the, it's the biggest? It's the biggest. Okay, it's the biggest YouTube channel. So these dudes are uber rich, and one of their things that they do is they just give away crazy amounts of money. Okay. They do big prizes and that sort of thing. And it's always just big outlandish stuff. Well, one of these guys um, comes out as trans. My son watches it. He talks about it all the time. And so now I'm thinking, one of my son's if not a hero, certainly a person that he likes a lot, is doing this thing that is going to create problems and questions. Around my house, we talk about this. So what, the way I handle that is I, I mock and ridicule. We laugh at it. I'm like, hey, son, isn't it ridiculous? Like, look at him. Look at him. He looks ridiculous. 
He's trying to grow his hair out, and it's like he's, he's trying to act like a woman, but clearly he's not a woman, and it's, and it's like we have a good laugh about it. So I, I posted about that on Twitter. I said, this man is um, doing a lot of harm. Like, can we not mock and ridicule people who behave in this way? That's in bounds. Um, I got text messages, or a text message from somebody who knows me personally that uh, is not part of my church. They, at one time they were, but not anymore. And they left over this sort of thing. Um, sends me a text message rebuking me for posting that. Kind of a, how dare you? This is not the way of Christ. This is not godly. And I'm like, well, consider scripture. Um, God mocks his enemies. God laughs over those who are um, the wicked. Mm -hmm. um, that's, so, so at that point, there's a, an opportunity for me to, to love. So I, this man is not my enemy, but certainly is a man that um, I'm, there's friction with, and I feel frustrated um, that he does not have a biblical worldview that has even any category at all for mocking a godless ideology that is destroying our society. Um, so that's, that's one example. Okay. So they came for you yesterday. Uh, Michael, Aaron, has the police ever come for you? I, Aaron, so I know you, I, I received the masculinist back in the day. I remember you, you, some light bulbs went on for me when you critiqued Matt Chandler's, you know, the whole servant leader thing. And back in, in those days, what was that, eight years ago or so when you started making those critiques, something like that? Did, Something like that. Did, did any Christians come after you for coming after the, the big names in the evangelical world? No, I've gotten remarkably little critique over tone. Uh, for one thing, my tone's pretty good, I'd like to think. <clears throat> you know, and I'm, I'm very cognizant of how I write things to try to be maximally fair uh, in, in every case. And that means that, you know, my style, that style works for some things. For other things, it, it, it doesn't work well. And uh, I do think I need to, uh, I was thinking about, you know, I really need to sort of reboot and uh, recapitulate some of the men's stuff because it's, it's good material that like not a lot of people saw uh, earlier in the newsletter. And it is, you know, some of it is more controversial. So we would see but here's what I think happens with a lot of stuff like this. Uh, I, I actually got this from, the, uh, from one of these neo-reactionary writers who said, look, there's basically, it's using the Dungeons and Dragons analogy. There's two spells they cast at you. Cone of silence and two-minute hate. Hmm. And so uh, Cone of Silence is from the old uh, TV show, I think in the 60s, called Get Smart. It's a sp you know, spy comedy. And they'd, they'd have the cone of silence. If they wanted to have a secret conversation, he'd come down so nobody could listen. And so the, the first thing they try is cone of silence. Because if they attack you, then they're just actually engaging with you and raising your profile. And so the first thing they want to do is completely ignore you, if at all possible. Uh, because uh, if, they, if, somebody, if you critique someone who's much smaller, you're just drawing attention to them, whatever. And uh, Doug Wilson calls this a quarantine. He says they quarantined me. They, now they used to critique me a lot, but now they've kind of come to the conclusion, don't ever interact with Doug. And actually, this, the cone of silence technique is extremely effective and extremely wise, I must say. And it's what I always advise people. It's like, don't feed the troll, is what they would call it on the internet. You know, Donald Trump thri thrives off controversy, and, and, and if 
nobody paid attention to his antics, he wouldn't, he wouldn't have become president. So there is a sense in which when you become outraged by something, the person wants you to be outraged, right? Especially when it's a social media world. So the first thing people do is they give you, they put you in a cone of silence. And it's like, we're not gonna engage with any of these people who are outside of the ecosystems that we approve at. Sometimes though, you get too big, they gotta do something. And then sometimes you get two minute hate. Which of course, it was from, I believe that's from 1984, George Orwell. And two minute hate, often when you get two minute hate, it's because you messed up. You said something that wasn't wrong, but it's something they could take out of context and create a firestorm on. So this happened to Jordan Peterson when he made a comment about enforced monogamy. And if you remember that, he made a comment about enforced monogamy. And basically, what he, all he's referring to there is a, it's a scientific, I think, term from the literature, referring to society, it's referring to societies in which essentially there are social and legal and other rules that sort of enforce a monogamy on it. It doesn't mean that nobody can get a divorce. It doesn't mean, you know, that you're forced to get married or whatever, but he's this term enforced monogamy. And oh my goodness, they came at, you know, <laughs> the huge, huge two minute hate. I mean, forced monogamy sounds like marriage. Yeah, it came after. Uh, Is it not yeah. just marriage? Well, I think he's, contra I don't remember the whole context, but I think he's sort of uh, critique comparing it with like a, with a polygamous society. Okay. Or something where you know the, the the highest state the king has a harem, and then the dukes have a bunch of wives, and most people and most dudes have nothing kind of thing. Hmm. And um, you know, when, when you have a society that's you know required to be monogamous, then most people can find somebody. Uh, but you know, eventually, right? Sometimes they they decide to put you on blast for something that you said or did, and, and there's always something they can find to put you on blast for uh, if they want, and so. Uh, that's one of the little things. But then they can think of other little techniques they, they can use. But in general, uh, unless you're like somebody who's like proven that you can cause them pain, they don't like to respond. Uh, big name people especially. They like to just put you in the cone of silence and whatever. And, um, you know, I, I've been, um, you know, remarkably, you know, fortunate. I'm surprised I haven't had more uh, attacks, to be quite honest. The one thing that I have been uh, critiqued over is any criticisms I write about David French. There actually are, even in my core reader group, a number of people who are die-hard David French partisans, and like I get like multiple emails from like longtime readers saying how disgraceful it is I'm attacking David French. <laughs> Which I think is interesting, you know, but that not 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 in so much that they disagree with my take on David French, or they might not like it, but that they they feel compelled to actually say something. I mean, David French has some, you know, rab. You know, when you've got proxies that attack the people that critique you, that's when you know. I guess you've kind of arrived in some way. <laughs> and it's not. I'm not using proxies in the sense of like they're literal proxies and that. You know, somebody sitting, you know, the, the main guy sitting there, David French sitting there sending all these people. They're sort of spontaneously organized proxies. And so that's what, that's what happens when, you know, like, like Tim Keller's got all these proxies. You can't write an article that is anything less than 100% laudatory of Tim Keller and not be attacked yeah. by people online claiming you've besmirched the godly reputation of Tim Keller. And so uh, David French has got those guys 
uh, out there. So I've got a little flack from David, which is fine. You know, if you're going to critique somebody, you can't get offended when people critique you. And so, you know, uh, th that comes with territory. But I actually tend not to do a lot of personal critique and personal feuding, and that probably accounts for why I don't get a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of negative uh, tone policing. You do write very deliberately, um, and I think anybody who reads your stuff can pick up on that. It's, it's, uh, you, have, you have a very specific aim in mind, it's obvious, and you try to get to that end very carefully. There's a certain measure of polemics required to a pulpit ministry, though. Yeah. So I would imagine you guys, I mean, you're not able to necessarily always be as deliberate in your, because you're not writing essays, you're, you're going after uh, sins in your right. congregation and in the wider world. Is, is that part of why the tone police come after pastors and people who have a pulpit ministry a little more than uh, laymen or hmm. uh, just writers and culture commentators at large? I don't know if it's true or not. I'm not sure. I'm, I think anyone that's engaging the issues is going to get flack at some point. Um, <clears throat> oh, we just talk. Anyone that talks a lot, right? Um, we, we're part of the chatter class. And uh, in the multitude of words, sin is not lacking. So when you talk for a living and write for a living, and you're a communicator, you will make mistakes and you will say things. And, um, or you'll say true things that hurt them, and they've been waiting for an opportunity to get you back. Um, I think that happens in ministry sometimes, too. They're going to make you pay for that down the road. But um, I don't know. I'm not sure. I think in pastoral ministry, it's, it, it is such a, a, a unique, unusual um, thing. Maybe a, a, a close, the close parallel I could think of would be a talking head on a, um, like a, a talk show host on MSNBC or Fox News or something like that where Phil Donahue <laughs> Phil Donahue <laughs> yeah we've been joking about Phil Donahue lately because he made a Phil Donahue reference and I'm like I might be like one of the few people remaining in America that actually knows who that is because he had he was a he was a talk show host back in the when was it the 80s like 1988 or? through 96 I'm gonna guess somebody look that up yeah it, anyway there's when when you're preaching it's a it's one-way communication um, it's not a conversation or a dialogue. It's like one guy monologuing for 45 minutes or so every week. So that's, um, that's significant airtime over a long period of time with the same group of people, many of whom, uh, I would say in most churches in America, there's a personal relationship with that individual. They know their pastor, they've been in each other's homes and that sort of thing. So whenever he's preaching every week, then there is a there's a relationship, and there is a presumption of what he actually means. And there's, so I think for people that know me well, they know the things that get me fired up. And even if in a pulpit, I am very precise and surgical with my words, they know, well, you feel a lot more strongly about that than what you just said. And so, the message is received with a tone or words that I never communicated from the pulpit. Because the pulpit, in my view, the pulpit is, this is sacred. This is something that I take very seriously. I am delivering a message from God uh, to, to the people from Scripture. And yet, the nature of the, the phenomena of preaching lends itself to lots of misunderstanding, um, a lot of presumption, and there's no opportunity for immediate feedback. 
There's no, well, what did you mean by that? Can you clarify? Well, wait a minute, I didn't catch that. There's no opportunity for that. And so it's a, the, the medium itself, um, over time, I think if there's, if there's an annoyance with, with the pastor, with a view that he holds, if there's something that he's emphasizing for the sake of clarity and because it's important and another person is resistant to it and they never have the opportunity to respond or give their perspective, they just, they build up and build up and build up and eventually they may explode because they're not receiving it as the word of God, they're receiving it as that dude's opinion. And so I think that that, that plays out in, um, over a period of time and it can, it can sour the, the relationship between the preacher and the congregation. You know, one thing, uh, just listening to this, <clears throat> when it comes to tone and reactions, there's the old uh, Stephen Covey thing, begin with end in mind. Was that Stephen Covey? Yeah. You to think about what are you trying to accomplish and what are your goals in what you're doing? And then your tone and, your, and how you respond to feedback is somewhat calibrated to that. And one of the things I appreciate about uh, Michael uh, Foster here, he, one, he's very entrepreneurial. I mean, this guy's done multiple things, started multiple businesses, churches. He's always listening to feedback signals from the market. But he's also not allowing the marketplace to dictate what his goals are. And so what you'll see when it comes to uh, how, uh, how high the temperature is on some of his rhetoric on Twitter, he turns it up or down, you know, depending on, on what's going on. And what happened, so for example, there was one tweet that you made about, guys, if you're thinking about marrying a single mother, maybe I you should, caution, I caution guys. Maybe, yeah, I just caution. Maybe you should just ask yourself first, ask one question. Why is she a single mother? I mean, you didn't even say tell you not to do it, but like, and this thing went unbelievably nuclear, nuclear viral, and it got there. And I think the key here is the reward structure of social media. Again, it rewards controversies, and so if you want to have, the, if your goal is to have the biggest profile, then you want to act like Matt Walsh, right? <laughs> and and that's what you know. Matt Walsh basically is in perpetual troll mode, and. Uh, you know, what is Matt, Matt Walsh is doing very good for, for himself, but is what, where's Matt Walsh moving the needle in society anywhere? Uh, maybe he is, I, I don't know. Uh, whereas I think it would be very tempting for Michael to just say, I'm just gonna poke, poke the feminists all day long. They can't resist, I'm gonna put this catnip out there. But you're like, I'm not gonna do that. And you don't do that. I did today. <laughs> maybe. Well the reason I did today is because the, the documentary is coming out. I know Ken wanted me to. Oh, okay. So that, but I usually but, don't. <laughs> but it's like, you know, that's, that's the point. So, like, my, my, one of my goals is, like, I actually want to change the world. Amen. I actually want to help, you know, conservative American evangelicals successfully adapt to the 21st century negative world. I want to have influence not in the subculture of people who read Manosphere blogs and you know, watch, you, you know, Rolo Tomasi videos and things like that, you know, I want to be able to influence the average pastor in the country. And, you know, I want to be able to like, I want to be able to have influence. And the question is, how, how, do, how much influence can I realistically hope to achieve? If I want to have influence, then it's probably going to be maybe one thing, maybe that negative world thing is the, that framework itself will be the influence I have. I don't know. How much influence can you have? It's an interesting question. 
but you know, I want to calibrate what I'm doing to that end. And so not just to maximize my number of followers, maximize my social media impressions. So I don't want to do things that repel normal people. Mm -hmm. And I, I also don't want to feel like, again, it's what I talked about in the relevance conversation. I don't feel like I can't ever offend the normal people by saying something that's true. I want to be able, I want to speak truth, unpopular truth, when I have to, but I want to be calibrated about how and why I'm doing that, and it's got to advance the mission. And so I feel like a lot of times, you know, there's no context of what we're doing. It's just we just get involved in the fray, mm -hmm. and we're not thinking about what the actual objective is or what we're trying to build, and we end up responding to the incentives. Either we get zapped, <clears throat> we, stick our, you know, we stick our head out of the tortoise shell, we get zapped, and we pull it back in, or our tweet goes viral, we get the dopamine hit, and now we're doing the same, same thing over and over again, and we're not thinking about, like, what am I actually trying to accomplish? What is my goal um, there? And my goal is not to be a council member of the Gospel Coalition or to be accepted by the Cool Kids Club. There's some people that's been whatever, but I also would like to say your average megachurch pastor out there, you know, I would like for him to be able to read some of my stuff and say, wow, this actually helps me understand the world better. Let me update my software. And, you know, I try to do that. My strategy, right or wrong, is to just methodically walk people through point by point by point by point what's going on in the world, why I think a certain way, here's why you need to believe this. And, um, and, and again, I haven't gotten a huge amount of tone police for it, but it certainly has, it certainly has less in my reach. I, I think when I first came across Michael Foster, he had one third of my number of Twitter followers. Now he has more Twitter followers than me. Yeah, and so, you know, that's like part of it. I'm not, max, I'm not Twitter maxing with my, with my strategy. And maybe I should turn up the temperature more. I've often thought that. Maybe I need to dial it up a little bit. I need to be more controversial. I need to pick a fight. Maybe to be more influential, I need to dial up the level of conflict a little bit. But to some extent, like, it's a tool to achieve the mission. And that's where I think a lot of people aren't thinking about that part of it. I'd like to ask a question of, of both of you, because there is a degree of you're not looking to some institution to, to give you a pre-curated platform. You're not looking for desiring God to invite you out to speak at their conference or something with people that are, they use Twitter, they use Substack, those kind of tools. You have to create your own platform in some way. You're using these tools, but you just slowly over time accumulate the followings. I just pulled it up, both you guys on Twitter, um, 24,000, 28,000 followers. How do you balance the need to create a, a following, to create, and, and what creates the following is the clickbait, the controversy that drives interest in your content, but you, you say, and I, I think both of you, neither one of you necessarily are just trying to get off on controversy, but controversy is what creates the platform that you want to leverage for non-controversial ends. How do you balance that? Well, one thing I, I think is kind of interesting uh, in, in terms of, of these things is, um, you know, I used to do a lot of work in urban policy, and I was a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, and so I had a platform, you know, essentially there. And I, I actually still get way more invitations and platforms from those sorts of things than I do uh, for my Christian work, even though I'm much more widely read than I ever was 
in the city space, my stuff's been much more influential in the world than it was. Uh, it, it is interesting, the institutions on that side have not shown that much interest in yours truly. Whereas, I still regularly get, you know, uh, uh, regularly get invited to speak at different things. I just spoke at the Canada Strong and Free Conference, which is sort of like a Canadian CPAC. It's the largest conservative networking uh, conference in uh, Canada. I just issued a paper with the American Enterprise Institute earlier this year. I just spoke at another American Enterprise <laughs> Institute event. I just did a, a podcast with Rai Han Salam, president of the Manhattan Institute. And so it's like, it's interesting that, you know, I write a column for a magazine. It, you know, I've written for, you know, every major publication. And uh, it's interesting, the secular platforms are actually still interested in what I'm doing, uh, much more so than uh, the Christian platforms. Uh, which tells me, uh, you know, trying to trying to win favor with those platforms is simply not a viable strategy. And I've talked a lot about what I call the inside game, the outside game. When you're on the outside, the incentive structure, since you have to build an audience, the incentive is to engage in sort of the clownish behavior to gain eyeballs. You know, so you you become the provocateur, MAGA politician, or influencer, and I sell my pillows through my promo codes, and I, I, that's, how I, that's how I make a living, because that's sort of what happens kind of, you know, you know but, if you're in, but then if you're inside the institutions, you, you really are somewhat limited in what you could say. So if I were like, you know, a gospel coalition acolyte or something like that, uh, which I have written for the I have written for the Gospel Coalition. I have written for Christianity Today. I'm these people, you know, they haven't totally frozen me out. But you know, there's a huge price to be paid for access to those platforms. And you know, when you're part in it, and it's a legitimate part. Look, when you're part of a like I say, I'm, I now I join a corporation. You know, I'm part of the management team of the corporation. If you're on the team, you have to be on the team. You can't just be a rogue agent. And so uh, I've thought a lot about the inside game and the outside game. And I've, all, I've often thought that the best scenario for me would be something like 70 per, 75%, 70% independent, 25, 30% institutional, because the institutions have support uh, and they also keep you anchored. It's good to have skin in the game. It would be good to, that I had to think about what certain people thought of me before I press send. That's actually good discipline, mm -hmm. I think. I don't want to have so much. I don't want to have so much concern that I have to censor everything, and now I have no. You know, they've got me, and I have no freedom. But too much freedom is also a bad thing. And people without too much freedom, again, they tend to go off the deep end, become more extreme, all these things. So I've always thought it's it would be good to have some sort of a blend there, but it doesn't always work out. You know, as much that uh, that way, and so. Part of it is I, I think the institutions and evangelicalism are not addressing the issues of the day. That's one reason we created American Reformer, which you should check out at AmericanReformer.org. We have a journal there. Uh, we do reform work. We the do promo things. codes. Uh, nope, you can you can go to the store and buy there, coffee. There is mug. no there is no my pillow promo code. On there, I can assure you. But I mean the point is we we want to create institutions that do provide that ability to give a platform and a voice because it is valuable. To, it is valuable to have. And, uh, you know, hopefully we don't turn into just another club, you know, and uh, that we're able to respond to, you know, 
uh, worthy voices who are not currently in our orbit. And so that's, that's definitely our aspiration. Oh man, I don't know. Um, this is just who I am. I've always been kind of like this and I recycle stuff. Kind of like what? Kind of like posting stuff on Facebook and <laughs> I recycle stuff from like decades ago. <laughs> I feel like at times like I'll just put it back out there. Um, I, I don't know. I think things just took off for me on Twitter because I followed a bunch of people and interacted and these days I think I, I am really concerned. I hate celebrity. Man, if, if you could have influence without fame and celebrity, that'd be the way, you know. Um, but in a voyeuristic influencer culture, they often get paired together more than you want them to. Others uh, just really corrosive for your soul. Um, so I don't know if it, if it all burned down. I'm still married to my wife, still my kids, still my church, and I still have my day job. So I can kind of do whatever I want, and I do when it comes to social media. And I'm happy that I was able to write this book and encourage people. For me, I think the mission is really getting stronger men, uh, getting uh, better pastors and planning churches that are equipped for the time we live in. And if I have to sacrifice any of that, um, I'll, it'll just have to go away because I'm not, I'm not willing to. And I don't know what my ceiling is. It's It's this is much higher than I ever thought it would happen, to be, to be honest. Um, so I'll go as far as I can, uh, as long as I don't have to uh, sell out. Um, I'm just not going to. Does what, that make sense? It does. What, what is the worst part of being really well-known? You've talked to me about this before, about just the pain points of being well-known being somewhat of a celebrity in, in our tribe. Z-list, I mean, let's be honest. <laughs> well, you said that somebody approached you in an airport once because they recognized you. It happens at every airport now. Yeah, every time. That's crazy. That is I was crazy. like, how's that happening? I was like, there's no way. But You do stand out. <laughs> well, so. All right. Um, uh, so I'm not really worried about people. There, you know, to, to be a blessing to somebody and to be an encouragement to them, and, and that's, that's great. I mean, I'm, I'm, happy, I'm happy for that opportunity. I am more worried about what it does to other people, like people follow you because they want to be like you, and they have this idea of what you're like. Um, because they, they take social media to be an accurate representation of your, of your whole person, and it's not, right? So um, Instagram, I always, I always hear people that complain about folks putting their nice pictures on, what, you, what, you want the crappy pictures on there? It makes no sense. I'm going to put all the best pictures of my, my vacation because I'm showing you the highlights of my vacation. Mm-hmm. And you're supposed to be smart enough to know that one of my kids crapped their pants or something in a car. <laughs> you're supposed to know that at some point, Em and I had an argument. You're supposed to have a brain, all right? You're supposed to know that. Um, but, um, but people are taking social media to be reality. You know, and a lot of these influencers, you meet them and they're not very impressive and they're just really good at the content game and they understand the algorithm and they, they understand how to, you know, you gotta do this many reels a day and whatever. Mm-hmm. And um, that's not gonna help us. Like we need institutions, we need churches, we need trained men, we need money, we need bodies, we need smart people, we need solid families. And um, in so much that uh, social media is a sort of sales funnel, so to speak, to bring those people in, I- I'm all for it. 
and it's not going away. And why we lost so many people to the woke stuff is because those guys were really good at using social media and the conservative pastors weren't. And some of them are just doing work. They're actually being pastors or meeting with people, pastoring them, whatever. And it all looked ugly and voyeuristic to them. And it is, it is. You do feel like you are a buffoon online sometimes. And you're like trying to figure your voice out because you, you don't want to be, it is embarrassing. You like, I have one of my pastors, I tell them, if I talk about myself too much and I talk about social media in the sermons, always tell me. And I, man, he, every time he, when I do it, he tells me I just die on the inside. And he's just like, no one, no one's, no one in our church cares. They're not on there. Mm-hmm. You know, and you're talking about this like this is their experience. It's not their experience. You know, and so you're not being helpful to the people and you're becoming self-absorbed. Uh, that's destructive. Hmm. Uh, that's what's wrong with Big Eva. Big Eva is destructive. It's evil. And that's why I, 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 the question I'm asking is how do we not do this again? I don't have the answer. But uh, those of us that caught the wave and are kind of rising right now and having influence, uh, trying to figure out how not to be corrupted, you know, people go out. So with, take Tim Keller. Here's my take on Tim Keller. Right, here we go. This, okay. Get ready my to take, get, get my ready take to get on, canceled more yeah, than you already are. I think Tim Keller uh, <laughs> shouldn't, his mistake was going to Manhattan. And if he had stayed at a country pastor, he probably would have been a really decent, at least middle of the line pastor. I think he went to Manhattan and Manhattan is an intense pressure cooker culturally and everything, and all of us are stupid enough to think that we wouldn't bend. I'm not so sure that's true of me. I don't know, maybe I would. I don't know, can I survive in that culture? What happens, you know, when you're out in Hollywood, uh, I was talking to Dawes about this and some other people, um, that when you're out in Hollywood, it's really easy for your standards to slip and you start to capitulate to the culture. You know, and so I think what happened with Keller, you did early Keller, he's actually pretty good, pretty helpful. I love his 2001 Redeemer Church Planning Manual. I don't know how that changed in the other, I haven't read any of his books, um, but that was actually really good for the most part. It, it, he just didn't do it. <laughs> like, I'm all for contextualization. That's not blunting the word of God. That's like removing the crud so, it's, so it stings. You want, the, you, want it to, you want it to be intelligible. But I think he went to a place where... Uh, that was beyond his bravery. And he started to shrink back in cowardice. And uh, we don't want to be like Icarus and get a little too close to the sun and outstripped our ability. And um, so I don't know. I don't you know. It's frustrating. I just think let's use it, but uh, be really, you know, it's like guns, right? Like guns are great, but there's four rules that you should follow when you use guns or bad things happen. And this is, these tools, like we can uh, usurp the influence of some legacy media and legacy thinkers really easy. Uh, um, but we're really, we're really dumb if we think it won't go to our head. Mm-hmm. And so we have to pair bravery with humility, aggression, with purpose. I think it's all, like we have to ask why. Why am I doing this? Yeah. You know, I think Cernovich is a, pretty good model at some level. So Michael Cernovich, uh, he was actually kind of early in the manosphere space and uh, Danger in Play, was that the name of his blog? I feel like it was. 
Yeah. yeah. So he was doing all that stuff. <clears throat> and then he did Gorilla Mindset, which was, it was okay. It was, it was decent. And then he caught the early MAGA train, and that's what got him to really explode. And, but I've watched him really change his approach uh, to how he talks online because he wants to stay independent. He doesn't want to be owned. So sometimes like he, I feel like he antagonizes the MAGA people these days on purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of them are kind of asking for it at some points. But, uh, but Cernovich, he, he trolled his way to the top. And then when he didn't even have to do that anymore, he was independent and he could talk about what he wanted. Like, that's, that is one way to gain a following, but you actually have to know why you're doing what you're doing. And uh, as pastors, you have to ask, is this divorcing you from your local context? And that's how I kind of got into County Before Country and localism and just saying we should really get priority and focus to the time and place God put us. Um, when we do that, it's really easy to say, what have you accomplished? What are you doing? Do you know your neighbor's name? Do you, do you know who to vote for when it comes to mayoral candidates? Mm-hmm. Um, are, are you involved? Like if we had a psalm sing at during COVID, we wouldn't have got arrested. None of us would. I know we wouldn't have. Um, what, what's your relationship with those people? Uh, so localism is one thing that kind of like, what are your actual, what are you doing in your community? Um, so I, I use, try to use social media to the best of my ability, uh, selfishly to feed what I'm working on in my life, <laughs> which is, you know, church planning and raising up leaders. I hope that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, can I can I ask one question? I don't want to be too simplistic, but we've kind of we've used the word tone. We've talked about tone police. We've talked about you two guys being having people come after you for tone. What, what actually is tone? Like, what's a definition of tone? Because I feel like it it appears to me in the ways that I've seen it, I've seen you suffer a little bit of handcuffs from the tone police. The definition appears to be however you made me feel. And that can't be an accurate definition. So what, what really is tone? I think that's, that's part of it. And there is, I think, tone matters. Michael talked about this earlier. Tone matters. It is, how do you make me feel? Um, it is largely subjective, but it is not as though it's... There's a reason why people don't come after Aaron the way they might come after somebody else. So I think that when people say tone, what they're talking about is the degree to which some negative emotion is baked into the way something is communicated. Uh, so there's, there's just the straight, I'm not going to say anything with any inflection. It's going to be completely... Um, you talked about monotone. It's, it's going to be completely monotone. No emotion, no passion, no energy. That's boring. You don't, it, it's not all that interesting, but it doesn't offend anybody either. Whenever there's some inflection, uh, whenever you say things, there's an edge, there's anger. It, you can tell, and that almost gives people permission to interpret what you said with whatever degree of emotion that they perceive in that message. And so I think if it sounds angry, people will say things like that sounded harsh. Um, I don't know how self-aware most people are about the way that they speak. They sound harsh or they sound angry, they sound emotional, and they don't know it. So there's, I don't like listening to people who are shrill. Shrill means something to me, it's a subjective word, but shrill means it's like you're just kind of, 
hair on fire, you're always upset, kind of frantic, anxious. I don't like listening to that. I like listening to people that have passion, conviction, they're firm, but it means something to them. And that does sound different than shrill. I don't know if I could, I don't know that I could put uh, specific definitions to it. it. It is intuitive, it's felt. So it's something real, but not necessarily something that we could always uh, identify with specific words and phrases. I mean, like, so Josh yeah. Dawes last night, uh, or was that this morning? It was this morning. Uh, it's been his, a long day. I know. <laughs> yeah. Um, so Josh gave his talk. It was, uh, I don't, Josh, I'm, I'm assuming you're still in here, but it was a great talk. It was uh, very helpful to me. And yet, despite the fact that he delivered it in a very cheerful, mm-hmm. uh, even, fair way, I mean, like literally his body language, his, his actual tone of voice was measured, it was controlled, it was precise. And yet, I guarantee you, there are people who will watch that talk and be like, I just didn't like his tone. Mm-hmm. And not dumb people. And so that's why I, I'm trying to figure out to what degree am I free from worrying about that you're, you're going to say my tone is the problem because you don't like the content. And to what degree do I actually need to watch the way that I speak? Well, the trick to that, and I meant to say this in my talk, is with tone police is just ask, if, so if I said the same thing, in a different tone, you'd be cool with it. And, they, and that's like, and they'll say, well, there's other things that I was bothered by as well. Right? That's almost what they'll always do. And that's how you can push the conversation um, with those sort of people, right? Is to say, okay, well, let's put aside tone for a second and talk about the actual content of the statement uh, since that appears to be an issue as well. And then you can get hopefully into some sort of substance that's good. Do you guys find like particular, so is, is humor, I mean, I, I've listened to Neil Shenvey a number of times. He's also very cheerful and engaging in the way he talks, doesn't seem to be uh, needlessly belligerent, uh, but he also uses a lot of humor. Uh, is, is, are there little tricks like that, like working in humor, working in smiles, or is it? Like people. Like them? Be likable, like people, enjoy people. I, I mean, honestly, that goes a really long way. Everyone's interesting. I get to know folks, and that's a, uh, yeah, that's a that's a cheat code in life, enjoying people and being likable. I have noticed people can pick up on that through all kinds of. There's these hidden cues that just as human, we really are spiritual and physical composite beings, and we can pick up on through body language, through eye contact, especially the bigger your body of data is for a person. You you can tell. Okay, you you really are listening to me, and you actually do care, and so you can get away with it a little more. You can be a little more pushy, and they'll. Yeah. I think the other thing is it, it depends kind of on your personality and like who you are. It, it helps if you're being congruent and authentic to your own personality. So I, I can tell you I, I have the tone and I do the things I do because I'm strategically trying to get, you know, influence, which is true. On the other hand, it's also very congruent with who I am. That's the kind of person I am. Yeah, I, you know, Michael is a very different person, and he's got a very different style that flows out of who he is. And so I would not advocate, look, you just guys need to all do what I do. The lesson you should be is be more like me. Um, you know, I'm an example of one style because I have this certain skill set that I have and a certain personality type, whereas, you know, Michael's going to be more aggressive in some sense than I am, but I wouldn't tell him to change that because it's also very congruent with who he is. Mike Cernovich is very congruent and, and effective with, with, with who he is. And so I think finding a way to 
yes, leverage some of these tool, rhetorical tools and like leverage some of the, you know, the influencer game and all that. It's good, but also you got to think about like, it, it's got to be somewhat congruent with your personality. I could probably not be a good troll. You know, if I, if I really wanted to. So it's probably not a game for me to play. Although maybe I'll no, get out my phone here. About that. You have like this, you have this thing that you do that I think, well, there's a side of you. That's what I love. <laughs> he's always, he's always calling out everybody. He does it in a really smart way though. And that's why I like Aaron. I like Aaron because he keeps me on my feet. So. <laughs> yeah. I, your reach, I think will be very deep, Aaron. There's a, there's a kind of person I, I remember I, I had a, a regular nine to five job at like a 200 person company here in Cincinnati before I started working for Michael and your masculinist, uh, uh, newsletters were the kind of thing I could forward to an unbeliever and expect that they would give it a fair read because it 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 was not uh, it was not trolly it wasn't uh, conservative talk radio uh, it wasn't hair on fire it was I designed it my newsletters to be the sort of thing you could forward to your pastor or forward to someone that they would at least read it and wouldn't puke all over it immediately and so that's that was very much you know, very much an intentional thing. I want to write this. I want to write things that can be forwarded. Mission accomplished. Um, so we try to end on a note of hope here. So we've been uh, making the case for plain speech. We've described some of its features. Can we go around the table? I'll, I'll, I'll end it. Uh, but can we give a note of hope to all of us as to why we, could, we should continue to speak plainly the truths of the Bible and uh, what fruit you see currently in your own ministries, your own lives coming from? speaking plainly the truths of God's word. I can go first. Um, what gives me hope is knowing that a lot of the things that we're talking about are skills that can be acquired. It's, it, it is, a, a lot of it is a function of things that are totally within our control. We can control how we speak. Uh, we can control, um, do we really care for people? Or will be interested in people. Um, a lot of it is a matter of personal repentance and wanting to display to the world something good and godly that is happening within us. All of those things are things that, um, through repentance and the power of the Spirit, we can control that. Um, and that having having that sense of it's not just all out of my hands. People are going to be offended no matter what. And knowing that there is a degree to which I have I have a say and how people respond to me by the way I communicate with them, that's a good thing, and that makes me hopeful. Um, what am I hopeful about? Well, I think there's a real hunger for truth, and people are willing to consider things um, within the mainstream. You know, the so-called Overton window has definitely shifted in a big way. I think, um, so at, at our church, we have lots of people coming from Methodist backgrounds. Um, and most people at our church have no clue about anything I do outside of church, uh, which is refreshing. Um, and so I think that this shows there's a lot of people that 2020 and everything that came from it made them question a lot. And, and they went back to their Bible. And the problems with, say, uh, United Methodist Church has been well known for a long time. And they're pretty obvious. And so seeing people just open up and hunger for... Uh, straightforward teaching. I think there's there's good things happening if we can, uh, you know, give them solid teaching and keep them uh, head in the right direction. So I, I'm very hopeful about that. And I think things are going a good direction um, in certain in certain sectors right now. So yeah. Yeah, I would just say people are looking for truth, and they're looking for a guide. 
we see that, especially in the men's sphere, you know, with Jordan Peterson and Joe Rogan and Andrew Tate. Mike Cernovich was one of those guys that got started in that. There's a ton of these guys. And, uh, you know, they're not all act equally giving truth. They're not all morally there. But the key is people are actually hungry for truth. They're looking for something. They realize that things are not what they should be. And so, you know, my hypothesis is that, you know, if you provide uh, that, then, um, then uh, you know, there will be a market for it. Uh, there's, this, there's this quip, if you, if you give lies to someone uh, who wants lies, you'll get rich. If you tell the truth to someone who wants the truth, you'll make a living. And if you try to tell the truth to someone who wants lies, you'll go broke. <laughs> and my hypothesis of what I'm seeing is I, there is, there, there's a, the, the market for lies is still going strong, but the market for truth is actually there and people are looking for it. And uh, so I, I think we can, we can be the source of truth. I'm, I'm writing a book and one of my chapters is called Be a Source of Truth. And uh, that's, what I, that's what I want to be. And what's the, when's the release date or the title? Or? Uh, the book is called Life in the Negative World. Uh, I don't remember what the subtitle is, actually. Uh, but uh, it's, and it's an expansion of my Three Worlds article coming out January 30th, 2024. All right. So we'll be on the excited about that. Uh, so I'll just end by saying my, my, my note of hope for this type of thing that we're advocating for here at the conference, plain speaking, the truths of God's word, is that the regular Christian can do it. And there are lots of regular Christians who seem to want to do it. We can't be Tim Keller. I can't be Tim Keller. 99% of Christian men can't be Tim Keller. We're not smart enough. We're not erudite enough. We haven't read enough books. But we can read God's word and tell our father-in-law about it and have an uncomfortable conversation at Thanksgiving. And I see lots of young people from a campus right down the street here where I'm told everybody is leftist and crazy and doesn't want what we're selling. And yet here they keep coming to this church and they seem to be, like you said, Aaron, very hungry for truth. And I, I love the idea of young people being excited about the obvious truths of scripture and just speaking them in plain English. So we have much to be encouraged about. Thank you all for being here and uh, love to see you tomorrow.